It's going. Welcome to the Danae. Oh, shit. Is it recording? Yeah, yeah, it's recording right now. I fucked up. <laughs> Welcome to the Wish Day podcast. This is episode two. If you listen to episode one, if you haven't listened to episode one, why are you listening to episode two first? That's rude. Anyways, uh, I'm here with Dr. Andrew Curley, and I'll let him introduce himself because I probably can't do it justice. Hey, my name is Dr. Curley. I'm coming from down from Black Mesa. <laughs> I'm on my wagon with my sheep and selling some wood. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dr. Curley. I'm a, um, a postdoc researcher currently in the Department of Geography at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I just finished another interview, so I'm in a little jovial, jokey mood. Yes, yeah, so that's that works for us. What was the name of the podcast? Wish Day. Wish, wish day. Wish day. I was like wish day. Wish yeah, day. I don't know. I was I was nervous that it would get it wrong. <laughs> or oh, also have Mike in the background. So if you so hear, if you hear Mike, yeah, Mike's going to be doing the sound effects. So, um, it'll be like the fart noises from the from what's what's that that show in um. Uh, and, uh, prank callers or crank jank the, park, the parks and rec you know they have that oh movie. yeah yeah more to do oh then there's like Torian Abed in the morning yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Mike will be doing the sound effects in the background he's our sound producer okay um, okay so Dr. Curley here again returning back to the focus yes yes uh, um so today we're actually recording this from a hotel in New Orleans uh <laughs> Geography conference. Room. Yeah, I said, come here. Come to my room. I'm in, I'm in uh, room. Yeah, I'm in my room. Yeah, 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 yeah. My room yeah. It yeah, doesn't yeah, matter. By yeah. the time you hear it, yeah. um, so I think it might be two weeks. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to Andrew, Dr. Curly. I can, I'll, you know what? Screw it. I'll just Andrew, whatever. Just call me Andrew. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like I wanted to Curley. talk to Andrew about what neoliberalism <laughs> is and how it has manifested itself in tribes, or at least indigenous people's lives and what you know what, what what could be the future of indigenous people as it relates to that that's a good question uh we had we also had a geography conference where a lot of this literature has been produced uh these these ideas of neoliberalism it's kind of going out of fashion right now in, in geography but it's something that was um that that has been used to describe economic tra- large-scale economic transitions over the last 50 years within uh the global north uh and also throughout the globe Throughout the throughout the uh, throughout the world, um, so you know people like David Harvey has published a lot or done a lot of thinking and theorizing on this. I draw a lot on uh, neo on um, on political colleges, people who talk about nature, neoliberalizing nature, and so those those are uh, geographers who I draw upon to understand my my thinking of, of neoliberalism and then how it pertains to to indigenous uh, to indigenous places. Um, I also look at uh, economic geographers have done done a lot of work on this and you know they have this large 50,000 foot uh, they say 30,000 foot you know like to say airline airplane level but I think they even go higher to like 50,000 feet uh, like space level understanding of I mean like outer space not not geography space but like (laughs) (laughs) like outer space level thinking about global transitions and and um, economic transitions and capitalism and, and these large totalizing questions. But so getting back to what you were asking, uh, neoliberalism is a re it's a it's a re articulation of capitalism. It's a way in which capitalism redefines itself in the twentieth century and early twenty first century in order to 
um, as Mike and I heard in another panel today, to resolve crises. So, you know, one of the theories that about how, how what happens with capitalism is it's constantly um, undergoing crises. It, there's, um, there's a lot of theories on that, and, you know, we heard one of the people that I, I rely upon a lot for my thinking is geographer James McCarthy, mm-hmm. and um, and he was talking about this, and he's drawing on other people, but he was saying like today in the presentation that, you know, part of some of the crises are like overaccumulation, like wealth gets concentrated too much, and then capitalism doesn't work, or, um, or there's a labor shortage, mm-hmm. like there's lack of jobs, and then labor, and then people get unruly, and then they start to mobilize and do things and try to, to to move capitalism out, and that's something that. Um, for example, people like Karl Polanyi has have talked about, you know, that when he was talking about the emergence of the New Deal, like this was a crisis in capitalism, and then capitalism had to reinvent itself in the welfare state yeah. in the 1930s in order to resolve these crises. And now, and then there became crises in the 1970s, uh, lack of markets, so overaccumulation or underaccumulation, lack of jobs. You know, there, uh, there was uh, inflation. There was an inflation crisis. There was oil. There was a scarcity of oil. So the oil crisis, oil crises that caused a lot of the inflation problems, in in the global West, and and some of these theories of, of how to make capitalism work better for the global elite started to gain some political currency in the late seventies and early eighties, and people like Naomi Klein, who wrote the Shock Doctrine, have suggested that these are long-standing ideas that predate when they became politically feasible. So, so there was a school of thought uh, going back to the, to the, what is it called, the Mount Pelon Society in, in Austria, or um, there, there was, um, there was uh, Hay- uh, Hayek and... Uh, and um, um, Friedman. Friedman. Friedman, Milton Friedman and Hayek, they, um, they, they started to talk about about un- unregulated capitalism, moving out of the restraints of the welfare state. Because the welfare state corrected a lot of the, 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 the areas where it would be prone to, to problems, like like banks investing in, in, in a lot of different kinds of monies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, like the glass steel, the steel glass, the glass, the glass, glass Steagall Steagall Act yeah. that, was, um, that was repealed by Clinton in 99, and then, and then um, and parts of that where they were talking about re, re putting parts of that back recently, but I don't think they have. But anyway, so like the point is like Hayek, Friedman, they were starting to create the to put down the intellectual frameworks for neoliberalism as early as the fifties and nineteen sixties. It became the at the height of the welfare state in the late fifties, early sixties, they're talking about transitioning out of that already. They're talking about let's get rid of welfare let's get rid of social security let's i mean that's not exactly what they're talking about but they're saying Mm -hmm. we need to have no like we need to reduce the spending of government we need to uh guarantee less for the poor and we need to the only thing the state needs to pay for is a military and then we can move beyond that and so and we need to open up free markets we need to end regulation of companies we need to allow companies emerge more, you know, these anti-monopolization laws that happened in the early 20th century, we need to loosen those up, you know, regulatory laws and, and, and the, the constraints against capital, we need to look, reduce those constraints. That's kind of the overriding tendency and drive of neoliberalism. And so this is something that became a political project in the late 70s and early 80s with the, as David Harvey has shown, or, or argued, I should say, with the election of 
um, he puts it in like different personalities. Mm. But these are transits these are political transitions in major uh, global economies, including in Great Britain. You have the 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 election of Margaret Thatcher or the, of, of the um, of the Conservative Tory Party, mm-hmm. and then she became the Prime Minister, and then on the other end the um, uh, the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, and so these these signaled a a transition towards open mark uh, towards uh, neoliberal capitalism, and uh, and then people who have built on that um, history have tried to to say that that have argued that neoliberalism operates in different phases. Mm-hmm. So um, I always get their names mixed up, but this. Jamie Peck and Adam Tickle were economic geographers, or are economic geographers, and they published a couple of joint papers in the early 2000s that were talking about what are these different phases and what did these different phases of neoliberalism do historically. And so they had they came up with this this um, this typology. I don't think it's called. A, I don't think it's a typology, but they came up with a different phase. Is this what you're referring to as rollout? Yeah. And so first was rollback. Yeah, rollback. Which is like moving the welfare state back, and then it's rollout, which is um, extending logics of neoliberalism into new programs. So mm-hmm. you're not rolling things back. You're not taking rights away. You're not. You're not limiting like unions or mm-hmm. like what the rollback uh, neoliberalism did in the 1980s. You're not ending state programs which are very dramatic and have a lot of pushback but what you're doing is when you create new government programs you're allowing for um, for new kinds of neoliberal partnerships so like institutionalizing or future institutional yeah like recurrent to future mm-hmm. you know uses of neoliberalism and that's what the, the new Democrats like that's what new labor did in, in England with under Tony Blair and that's what um, Bill Clinton and then Barack Obama did with the Democratic Party in how they were thinking about their approach to the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, they they hired and they continued that they hired neoliberal ec- economists to their administrations, um, and then they continued a, a lot of these neoliberal policies into their into their administration. That means uh, allowing private corporations to do government service, government work. So that's a, a way in which private companies find new markets. They find the markets of government work. Historically, these things have been thought about separately, like government provides certain kinds of work to subsidize industries that, that companies would not be able to find profitable themselves, but need to be done. Yeah. Like um, schools, right? Schools, you know, um, are things that if you run it on a for-profit model are going to dis- disallow a lot of people from participating in them, higher education. But, um, but if, if you keep it a public model, then you reduce the cost of the consumer, which is a student, and, and that's seen as a public subsidy, which then produces more wealth <laughs> in the future. And in this case, you know, you have a higher education, you become a, a, you, you produce more valuable work. <laughs> Your work is valued more, you know, as a, somebody who is an educated person. So, like, whatever your commodity is, it's usually your time. Mm-hmm. And that itself is more valuable. And so you're contributing to the to your economy more by being educated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that education is subsidized by the state. 
Now, if you move that to a private model, then you might not be able to get that because the private model needs to be immediately profitable. Yeah. The profitability doesn't come two or three cycles later. It's like you, it needs to immediately make pro- profit. So that's why the, the interest of the institution becomes one of exploiting you mm-hmm. rather than giving you something. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a fundamental difference, I think, between welfare state and neoliberal state. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, these are subtle changes, but they're also, like, important changes. And, and so that's what I think is happening within, that's what they argue, and that's what I also agree with, is happening with the neoliberalization of the U.S. economy and the global economy. And it's not, it hasn't only played out in the U.S. and in England, but also in the EU, in East Asia, uh, the, even in, in, form, in, in existing socialist countries like China, who have uh, maybe more dramatically than in the U.S. rolled back state provisions and state guarantees to to people, and allowed companies and corporations to start to make profit in their in these places. Something that socialism was historically designed to challenge, but actually what they're doing is they're just keeping a state monopoly on the economy, and allowing private corporations to come in and exploit people. So that's that's happened across the world, and it also is concurrent with the rise of the global economy. And what we, some people, especially in the 90s, but the, the term has kind of gotten out of fashion, called globalization. And so it's the idea that international trade and free trade agreements are desirable. They reduce the cost of goods for consumers everywhere. They open up markets for, for producers everywhere. So it's seen as a win-win for both producers and consumers. That's the whole idea of globalization. And that's something that is a, was a driving force in neoliberalization of the global economy in the 1990s and actually going from the 1980s into the 1990s and into the 2000s. So for example, when you go into like uh, uh, producing companies like in Tanzania where they had coffee, I was just talking about my research in Tanzania before doing stuff in that nation, there used to be an inter- a, 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 na- a national marketing board. Mm-hmm. So like the Tanzanian government would set the price for coffee that was guaranteed. And it would it would it would figure out a, a model to do this where it wasn't taking up a lot of costs. Like mm-hmm. when on the, in years when the coffee was worth more than the price that they set, then they just keep that those profits and they hold it in a bank. Mm-hmm. And then when in years when it was less, then they would take that reserve money and and, and subsidize, you know, the 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 value difference yeah. between. The, the cost that they're selling the coffee at on the international market and what they're pr- paying the producers so mm-hmm. that the state doesn't end up losing money mm-hmm. but the producers are also not living in precarious circumstances yeah. where one day it's high one day it's low so they always get a stable price for their product and they know and can anticipate and plan around that those international those national marketing boards were dismantled under neoliberal conditions in the 1980s and 1990s they were things that international lenders like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, but most uh, most notoriously the International Monetary Fund, required that these governments end. They said, you know, you can no longer hold these commodity boards. You have to get rid of these. You have to allow and open up free trade of your of these products, and that only benefited um, companies who purchased these goods because then they they are the ones who can profit more. You know, with mm-hmm. with the dismantling of these marketing boards, they can pit producers off of each other. They can, which is what they did. They internationalized the the coffee trade. So instead of like a few thousand coffee workers competing against each other in 
in a in a, a local economy, um, they there's twenty five million coffee farmers across the world who are competing against mm-hmm. each other because everybody is trading with one another. All the markets have opened up mm-hmm. with one another. So th- those things create competition among the producers and concentration of wealth among the owners of capital okay. institutions. So that's how neoliberalism has worked and played out in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. So how does that work in Indian country? Is it our, our, our fry bread? It's just a... <laughs> it, 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 it works in the way that um, new institutions are rolling out. Mm-hmm. Like... So now, uh, over the la- over the course of the '90s, I haven't written on this, but this is something that I've been planning to talk about. Is we have this rise of um, of um, enterprises. Yeah. So the enterprises are doing what the tribal government used to do, and the enterprises are moving away from having accountability to tribal government to just having a non-elected board of people who just see amongst themselves to make their enterprises the most profitable and often at the expense of Navajo people. And sometimes they get subsidized by the tribal government, but then they reap all the rewards. It's not something as a social good for the people, but it it employs a few people and it makes them a lot of money. So that's something that we see, you know, that's a neo, that's a cannibalization of the tribal government and it's a form of neoliberalization of what's, of of what, of what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was something... You, I've noticed at least when I was reading your the thesis, but also the role of you know, I don't know if I'm saying this right, dev, devolution or devolution. I've heard it in weird De- different. Yeah, and devolution. And like that's the opposite of evolution. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that I've noticed, and, and this is something you pointed out to me a while back was, what exactly is, you know, I, I was always a big fan of local governance and trying to understand it, but I understand how that could be co-opted by neoliberalism and even employed by kind of indigenous sentiments against government or I guess our our own tribal government as well so we try to focus on bringing power to the community can you explain about that that's a good question devolution the devolution is seen as a good thing for most people because that's historically where our political power has lied you know at the community level at the same time what, what, what is at risk is the lack of economies of scale. So when you work at the larger scale of the Navajo Nation, you have the, you have the resources and ability to, to protect the tribe against companies. Like Peabody Coal, for example, has to deal with Navajo DOJ, who has expertise in mineral law and has expertise in federal Indian law and knows the rights of the tribe. Now, you know, people would argue with me whether or not DOJ does good work, but in theory, they should be able <laughs> yeah. to to uh, have the, the expertise to to defend the the Navajo Nation against exploitative companies like Urban Outfitters. Like Navajo Nation as a nation is able to bring suit against Urban Outfitters. If you take it, if everything was decentralized, how would Hauk Chapter, how would Sheep Springs, how would any of these little chapters be able to to fight large companies? like mm-hmm. that and so that's that's that makes it easier for companies to play communities off each other like they can come in and say oh if you don't build a shopping center in Lupton then mm-hmm. we're going to build it over in Bird Springs yeah. so you guys either got to get with our program or Bird Springs benefits yeah. but if you're dealing with the nation then companies can't play smaller governments against each other and so that's why neoliberal neoliberalization neoliberals and neoliberalization have emphasized decentralization because for one thing, it resonates with people, like how it resonates with you, it resonates with a lot of people. They don't like government being so far and inaccessible and concentrated and centralized. Mm-hmm. So that's just something people naturally don't like. 
because it feels alienating, it feels elitist, it, it, there's a lot of truth to that. There's class politics, you know, this idea of technocrats, mm-hmm. the deep state, as, as reactionaries now call it. But, like, that, that is something that I think is an intuitive sense of injustice that exists in centralization of government. But when it comes to, um, to how that actually works and the advantage of, of, of capitalists and, mm-hmm. ca- and capitalism... What it does is it, it, it weakens the defenses against, yeah. cap, uh, against capitalism. And so we see it play out in the United States where, where now um, smaller companies can play states off each other. Mm-hmm. Like, and with labor laws especially. Like, so they say, okay, you know, um, Detroit and Michigan, a traditional blue state, have developed these really strong labor laws mm-hmm. that protect workers, that guarantee hours of work, that guarantee pensions and health care, that kind of thing, yeah. that costs the company money. So if we go to Tennessee, they have what's called a right-to-work state, which means that we don't have to do anything for the workers. They don't have to join a union. Unions are undermined, mm-hmm. and therefore the, it's, it, it leads to more profitability to the to the to the companies like Toyota and Honda and a lot of Japanese manufacturers yeah. who locate all of their manufacturing plants in the South in the in the U.S. South mm-hmm. where agi- where uh, hostility towards unions is higher. Yeah. So that's like that's part of what decentralization does. It it disadvantages communities as much as it advantages them in making decisions for themselves. It also like lessens their their capacity to do yeah. to, to, to pull their resources together and defend themselves against these large interests. So if you lived in a socialist state under decentralization, I think that could work. But yeah. if you're living in a capitalist economy in decentralization, I think that what that does is just expose you to risk. Yeah, I totally just forgot. If you're listening to this, we're, we're hella hella leftist. So. <laughs> oh yeah, just <laughs> we can talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we don't just we shouldn't just declare. We yeah. should say what we mean by those yeah. politics. So like, yeah, you know. Um, Socialism is something about equal distribution of, of opportunity and wealth for everyone, and it raises the standards of living for everyone. Mm-hmm. Everybody, there's a, been a long-term propaganda campaign in the U.S. to say socialism is bad because it will impoverish you. Mm-hmm. Well, they're looking at places like Venezuela or in Russia and, or the former Soviet Union, and a lot of places who have this that are already marginalized... Yeah that are poor and then they say look socialism makes you poor mm-hmm. in fact they were already poor and they're trying to they were working through national socialism national socialist projects in order to better themselves but they're never going to they never in a global capitalist economy i don't think they can ever get to the standards that we're used to at the top of the pecking order yeah. which is in the united states where a lot of the consumerism mm-hmm. is based so so because of that it looks from our perspective like these things don't work but we don't see all of the ways in which they do work, which is like increasing literacy rates, increasing like declining childhood mortality rates, you know, increasing sterilizations, mm-hmm. not sterilization, but like um, immunizations. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Everybody makes a slip. It's like, right, where's, Wait, like, where's our record set? It's like, <laughs> Everybody just stops. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've got to sterilize the population. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that kind of leads in, in more in towards that direction of like, a, a, uh, <laughs> um, like the <Using> castrations. <laughs> the 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 how do I say this? There's a there's a hesitancy within the indigenous community of kind of looking at Marxism, socialism, um, and a lot of that kind of has to do I think with the propaganda, at least with the Navajo Nation, because I was was reading a book where 
a Navajo man or the, a record of a Navajo man talking about how he was taught to not want to be a socialist or a Marxist, that they were bad. And I think a lot of that resonates within our community now. And, you know, as socialist Marxists or individuals who lean that way, you know, we do encounter that bias, not just within communities, but also kind of within the academic scholars yeah. who view it as non-Western. Well, what can you say about that? I, 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 can, I can sympathize with what they're thinking because a lot of self, self-described socialists in the United States are ridiculous. They make themselves ridiculous. They're a parody. Mm-hmm. And because they, it's all about a label for, for them. And so they say, like, oh, I'm so radical. Let mm-hmm. me slap this label on me. And this is who I am. And this is how radical I am. And it's all about, it becomes a, a thing about themselves more than it is about um, an, a, a philosophy of politics and economics. And so I think that's a problem. Like, I just gave you this literature from Baba Vakian, who's like <laughs> this cult of personality, yeah. this self described Maoist, and he acts like he's a savior for everyone. Yeah. And like, he's got this God complex. And like, if you're somebody who picks something up like that, you're going to be like, oh, these socialists are ridiculous. This is nonsense. And I wouldn't, it would be hard to defend something like that because that looks ridiculous. But what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is, um, you know, a lot of what has called itself socialism has been, has served in that propaganda model. It has actually helped and intensified U.S. propaganda against, against socialism and so that that creates a challenge for us working in the United States of how this to to for, for a really inappropriate word how to sell this this thinking <laughs> to to people to consumers yeah to <laughs> consumers in order to to get them along on the program but no I think that like if we take a step back and we say what is it that socialism is advocating for it's talking about um, ending wealth distri- uh, wealth disparities uh, amongst people. And, you know, a lot of us don't see extreme wealth, so we don't really know what it looks like. It's really abstract to most of us. Um, but actually, if you got to see how wealthy some people are, yeah. you would start to say, yes, we do need socialism, or we need more socialism, or we need more wealth distribution, because all this concentration of wealth is irrational. It's not a way a society should function. It doesn't even, it doesn't work for most people. It's, 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 um, it's something that prevents us from, all of us from moving forward. Like if we were able to bring all of the, 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 ex, the wealth that's, that's created in modern industries, you mm-hmm. know, through, and the, um, um, and the, the, the time that's saved in the new way we do labor, like we could emancipate a lot of our lives. Yeah. You know, we don't, we're at the high, we're, we're at our highest point of technology, and and um, and our most comfortable living, and we should be able to 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 spread that to everyone, and that's something that I think is possible mm-hmm. today. Like, but only if we were able to take some of the monies that are concentrated up in these people who are undeservingly hoarding it, yeah. and give it to everyone. And I think all of our standards of living would improve yeah. under those under those. Um, Conditions and for me, for example, I would happily uh, reduce my personal pay, which doesn't isn't a lot, but uh, in order to to better the quality of living for all of us, because I think the rewards for a better society outweighs having a few extra dollars in your yeah. pocket. So, what would then be your uh, your way your way of practice as a socialist? Go counteracting the the cult personalities that yeah I mean so like we gotta I, I, it's a hard question to answer because I'm still thinking through it but we gotta 
we've got to abandon a lot of what existed in the past. You know, we might not even want to call ourselves socialists anymore because it's got so much baggage as a, as a concept and as a terminology. But, you know, the idea of equalizing economic benefits as much as mm-hmm. political rights. So mm-hmm. that's a very simple idea when you think about it. It's like everybody is entitled to the same political rights, mm-hmm. at least in theory, within democratic societies, mm-hmm. right? You know, everybody, like one person, one vote is a model. Yeah. And we need to think about equalizing our economic opportunities and rights, mm-hmm. which, you know, are actually a little bit more hard to pin down. It's easy to know who a person is and how, they, and how to give them an opportunity to vote. It's a little bit harder to say, how do we give everybody the same opportunities in modern economy? But we can do it. It's not impossible to, of a problem to solve. So it's really working, working out those issues. That's how I think modern socialism ought to work. Um, and it, it, I think most people would accept it more as a democratic mm-hmm. approach. Um, you know, I think it was the Russian Revolution and Leninism, and maybe it was even, uh, it goes back to Marx, but I think when it really started to, um, to become this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, mm-hmm. that was something that... Um, that uh, that led it in a different path that I think has shown that that doesn't work very well, which is this idea of concentration of power of the state, which became the Union of Socialist uh, Soviet Republics, mm-hmm. and and it became this ridiculous parody of itself. And there was an, uh, I mean, it, there were things that were good about that system mm-hmm. for some people, but it was also like uh, a totalitarian state for, for a lot of its history, mm-hmm. a lot of political repression. Um, and those are things people remember about it because of the propaganda model in the U S but there are also real things that happen. And so, um, and so we need to move away from that kind of legacy and, uh, and move more towards things that are about much more practical and workable on the mm-hmm. ground. I think that's something that and uh, Julius Nereri was was gesturing towards when he was talking about African socialism. He wasn't so the, historically with. Wait, the, can you explain who who that? He was a he was the first president of uh, Tanzania when Tanzania okay. gained. It was Tanganyika at first, but when they gained independence, I think it was in 1964. They uh, uh, um, he he was one of their independence leaders and then became the first president. He was actually president for 30 years, but. Some people say it was like a one-party rule system, mm-hmm. which it was, um, but um, there was some semblance of democratic institutions there. Um, it's heavily criticized for their policies of, of Ujamaa, mm-hmm. which were uh, moving with village concentrations, and and um, yeah, but I, you know, I think those those policies could uh, we could still we could re- rethink that again. I mean, mm-hmm. we. They had Ujamaa, we have grazing districts. Yeah. We live in a capitalist economy, they live in a socialist economy. I mean, we've had the same impacts, you know. We've had the same, like, everything, I think a lot of what you criticize of Ujamaa, you can criticize with uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and grazing districts. Okay. But, like, so, okay, so if we have, if they're, like, akin, if they're, like, experiences, it's not the socialism that's a problem, it's the... It's the the lack of accountability of state. It's the mm-hmm. what James Scott calls authoritarian high modernism. It's this idea we know better and we know what's best for you okay. attitude. And so we need to protect people from that kind of thinking. And I think that's what people are afraid of with socialism is because it has embraced it. Had it got too comfortable with authoritarianism and mm-hmm. authoritarian high modern. I mean, everything is too comfortable. With, yeah. Anybody who's too comfortable with authoritarianism, I think, is bad. I don't think people want to live under authoritarian governments. Mm-hmm. But 
that's something that um, socialists have been harder to to move away from. Yeah. They make too many apologies for it. Um, and so that's something that I think needs needs to 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 be addressed in, in that regard. And that's where anarchists actually have a one up on socialists, is because they've never embraced this authoritarian governments like socialists have. Yeah, and that's what causes problems. And and that's you know something that the U.S. propaganda system has done a good job at exploiting. The other thing, and so that's one kind of critique. On the other end, there's um, you know like environmental groups and others who are already leftists. Mm-hmm. Or they th- they may not be leftists. They don't. They might not describe themselves as leftists, but uh, they're we'll call them like social justice groups, um, social environmental justice groups. And what they will say is that Marxism is Western. Mm-hmm. So that it'll be like it's a ontological and epistemological problem, less than a than a authoritarian issue or yeah. a legacy of authoritarianism. So like. And on the under those conditions, I think that there's a lot of. I always feel like anybody who levels that claim, most people who level that claim are de- leveling them contradictorily or hyper or or um or, or or what's the word I'm looking for um hypocritically, yeah. meaning they'll accept certain aspects of so-called Westernism, but they don't, but they'll deny others. And so, like, anyway, I and I I don't think that that's um. I don't think that's the best way to understand socialism yeah. and Marxism as a as only a Western philosophy. I think it's something that originates. I think Marxism is Western in that it's critiquing capitalism, and capitalism is Western, mm-hmm. um, coming from the West. And but I think that it also, as a Western philosophy, critiquing another Western philosophy, provides the be- one of the best and most insightful critiques of this mm-hmm. Western idea of capitalism. And I think we, there's a lot we can draw upon that. But I think there's a lot of shortcomings in Marx's uh, analysis of capital when he's thinking about colonialism. Mm-hmm. And that's something that indigenous scholars are, are working and pointing out. Yeah. You know, how does colonialism work within a critique of capitalism? We're, we're, we're still working that out. There, I, there's some arguments about how that works. And I don't agree with everything that's said out there, but I think yeah. that the conversation is good. So there, there's, there's that that's happening. And yeah, I definitely like, see like a lot of the lingo from Marxism kind of be is, is usually the starting point, and then they develop their own lingo. Yeah. From that, and that that's always been helpful, at least when it's reading indigenous people critiquing capitalism. Yeah. Um, if it's not more of the cultural spiritual aspect, it's more of the economic kind of yeah. version. They start with Marx, and then they kind of develop their own ideas, which I always find fascinating. Uh, so. This kind of goes into the usually the final question I ask people is, what is an and, and you're probably still working on this as you develop it, but what, what is something you envision as a Navajo nation for liberation of, I guess Navajo people, but then if you want to talk to globally all indigenous people and eventually you know the white work, or the working class, you know, the white working class so. is our liberator. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, Bob of Arkians over there. Bob of Akian is my vision. <laughs> white Jesus <laughs> white Jesus white secular Jesus <laughs> yeah Maoist Jesus um, so the question is what is to be done I think that um, well he's in quoting Lenin yeah yeah no I mean it's like he, he's he, that's why he's quoting. and ten years later Andy yeah. Curley became a Leninist <laughs> is the beard and the glasses yeah. and everything <laughs> but go on well sorry. right yeah no I mean like liberation is a good is it something that I think some people are developing like the Red Nation as an operating um, politics you know, mm-hmm. uh, to talk about 
future native nationalist aspirations. I was just reading this essay by Leanne Simpson, and she says something about, she's talking about resurgence, and she says, um, resurgence is not, indigenous resurgence, indigenous resurgence is not, is nation building, not nation status, not nation state building. Yeah. So she's trying to make a difference between Western political traditions, but also at the same time talking about nation building. But what does that mean? What is nation building that's not nation state building? Yeah. That's, you know, that's still left to be filled out. That's, yeah. a, that's a gesture in a direction, but without specifics. And it also doesn't account for contradictory practices, mm-hmm. which are co-workers who I work with or tribal officials yeah. who really embrace their, their working class identity, mm-hmm. their capitalist identity, yeah. their, their um, maybe even their republican identity. A lot of things that we disagree with politically or philosophically, but are actually indigenous people and practices on the ground. So we need to have a, a program that incorporates these, not, not accommodates, but incorporates um, everybody and to figure out a way that we can talk about moving these politics forward. Mm-hmm. And maybe rhetoric is not the best way. Maybe mm-hmm. law, um, law, um, maybe like declarations work among some people, but I think, uh, um, I think when you get to, you know, practitioners on the ground or people living in the reservation, they're always looking for something that's practical and yeah. workable. So they're always looking for plans. Like a common sense approach. Yeah, they want, yeah, like Gramsci and common sense. They want plans, not, not, declarations mm-hmm. and alternatives which is funny yeah. because a lot of them do make declarations you know mm-hmm. you sit at a council meeting and people will declare <laughs> things from here to the moon but i declare myself yeah president. i mean like you know they'll have all the the, the jewelry and they're like auto so i'm thinking about and there's headband and he'll just stand up he there probably and never listen to this yeah, so. <laughs> I declare he's like, sovereignty. He's like Braveheart every council session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think at the beginning of what you mentioned is, is something that I'm kind of, I'm beginning to understand is, you know, building, I get that idea of trying to build a nationhood or a nation state without, or a nation That's without. That's Leanne the, Simpson. Yeah, and, me. oh yeah, yeah, what you mentioned, yeah. and, you know, Leanne Simpson. And it, it's definitely, it, it makes, you have to be very critical of the way, the direction that you go, just so that you don't fall into, you know, going into, like, neoliberalism or other forms of capitalism and, I guess, colonial structures and being careful not to reproduce them. Uh, so, I, I don't know where that thought was going. I had it, and then it just, like, disappeared. So, well, like I guess a, I'm going to yeah, build off what you are saying, yeah, and yeah. I think we gotta my, we got to figure out some place that exists between actual proposals mm-hmm. which can be neoliberal if you're just replicating what the proposals yeah. look like coming from uh, development institutions mm-hmm. they're like this is what we're doing out here why don't you do it and you're yeah. like oh, okay I'll do that and then yeah. that's replicating neoliberal po- politics so we gotta move somewhere somewhere in between that not neoliberalism but the practice like the, the application of yeah. like projects on the ground like people want water people want electricity yeah. people want very simple things mm-hmm. so like you know, you want to talk about how to accomplish that, but also capture the spirit and the directionality of mm. some of the stuff that's being produced in critical indigenous yeah. conversations, which is like this resurgence literature, decolonization mm-hmm. literature, and this emerging liberation literature, mm-hmm. nationalism without the nation statism. Yeah. Those kinds of conversations. Like, we want to capture the philosophical directionality of that yeah but also like bring it down to the level of everyday uh, people of the politics in the reservation mm-hmm. and be able to like accomplish something with that 
And I think you can say, like, and this is what socialists, this is where socialists have a plan. This is what they've done for a long time. They're like, we built you a water tank through socialism. Congratulations. This is what we do. You know, like, yeah. that's that's where, like, they have actually been able to do yeah. things. They've been able to modernize. They've been able to, you know, people want latrines. People mm-hmm. want indoor plumbing. Socialism has, like, a way in a thinking about that kind yeah. of stuff. And so, like, you know, it's, it's, it's like merging all of these ideas together. And they're not all going to fit nicely like a jigsaw puzzle, but yeah. they can work um, even in, in conflict with each other in producing things, um, thing, things on the ground that we can say is an accomplishment. Yeah, that, that, that seems to be something I'm noticing. Um, but I, kind of moving away completely, is there a really good special voice you can do? The same way I can do a special voice. Speaking of socialism... What I can do is I can talk about the democratic socialist potential of my great state of Vermont, where we will bring libertarian indigenous politics uh, to Ben and Jerry's, which is also housed in Burlington, Vermont. And with our liberation ideologies, we can provide health care to the working class, to the working people. And this, to me, will be the political revolution that will transcend and transfer the U.S. into a democratic socialist state. Hello there, friends. It's good to see you again. My name, you already know who I am. We're, we're going to take over for a couple minutes. Bernie, can you talk about Native people, your brothers and sisters? Not Jeb, though. I don't like him. <laughs> to me, the Native people of the United States are the most accomplished flute players I have ever met. They can carve flutes out of any kind of tree that they find, usually sticks on the ground in the park. Sometimes squirrels have been gnawing on them, and they'll pick it up, they'll carve out a flute, and they'll play you three or four notes. To me, that's genius. That shows the spirit of America. Something that Simon and Garfunkel once said is the coming of America. This is something that I believe in and will contribute to the larger political revolution in the United States. You want to know how I met my wife? It's about flutes, actually. I, I was the white Coco Pelli. Uh, I learned in high school, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up this instrument. I'm going to change the world. I played with this Navajo man, Sam Nakai, I think. I was like, come here, come here, Pocahontas, his brother. Let me show you who the real Coco Pelli is. Now, this is where me and Mr. Bush disagree. Mr. Bush said in 2003... 2002, he tells the world that Saddam Hussein is harboring flutes that can destroy the world. Play special notes, you pick up the marble flute, you play a note, and everything is gone. There are flutes of mass destruction. And what I was saying is that there are no proof. We have flute inspectors on the ground who are telling us that Saddam Hussein has dismantled and gotten rid of his arsenal of magical plane flutes. I still believe they're there. I was told one's a big, giant, golden, oily flute. A lot of oil. You, you got to keep your flute very oiled, or sometimes the buttons don't press, and then you, you don't sound I like what you're Coca-Cola. talking about is a clarinet. So you're getting them confused between the clarinet and the flute. That's this a woodwind, correct? This is a problem with Middle East policy today, is that you can't tell your clarinets from your flutes. That's what my jazz teacher said. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. So, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, 
<laughs> Any last comments that you'd That's like to That's it. Have? I got to go to my panel. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs>